This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. We always take a few moments to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Scripture teaches that at the instant of salvation we are saved and forgiven of all pre-salvation sins, but whenever we sin after salvation, it breaks that fellowship with God. It shuts down or quenches the sanctifying ministry of God the Holy Spirit so that it's necessary for us to have a, a cleansing. This is the thrust of John 13 when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet to illustrate the necessity of ongoing cleansing in the Christian life. When we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that instant of cleansing, the Holy Spirit then resumes his sanctifying ministry, and we resume our walk by means of the Holy Spirit. It is when we are walking by the Spirit that the Holy Spirit teaches us, that he brings to our memory the doctrines that we need to apply for any given set of circumstances or situation. And so it is important for the believer to keep short accounts and to make sure that we are in fellowship, especially when we are studying the Word. Let's pray. Our Father, we are indeed grateful that we have a Savior who paid the penalty for all of our sins as he died there, separated from God for those three hours between noon and 3 p.m. on Golgotha. During that time, every single sin that we'll ever commit has been paid for by him so that we can have a salvation that is free to us, something that we do not earn or deserve, but something that is all-sufficient. And this salvation brings a new life, and that life is energized by God the Holy Spirit who is working in us and through us, through using your word to mature us, that we may glorify you both in time and eternity. The main means the Holy Spirit uses for that sanctification is your word. Our Lord prayed, Father, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. And so, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that it might be used in our lives to mature us, and to conform us to the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. We are now in the second of the seven letters to the seven churches. The seven letters, as I have said, are evaluation reports, congregational evaluation reports, Posted by the Lord Jesus Christ in order to teach them the importance of living today in light of eternity. If we have one major thrust of these seven letters, it is to these congregations that living today is designed to be a witness within the overall framework of the angelic conflict. Living today is part of a training system designed by God the Father for every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, so that church-age believers who have a unique status in all of human history can fulfill their future function 
as members of the body of Christ to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ when he comes at the second coming to establish his kingdom. When you grasp that, it should revolutionize your whole understanding of why you are here on planet Earth. It gives meaning and definition to our life. It helps us to understand and deal with the the suffering, the adversity that we so often face in life, no matter uh, which direction it comes from. And everybody gets uh, nailed by adversity or suffering, some sort of assaults, hostility, rejection, financial problems, health problems, whatever it may be. We all face these in different stages of our life. And so often... It's the response of too many to think that, well, somehow God's out of control or God's lost control or or it's just too much to bear. And when we realize that God has a plan and a purpose and that nothing happens in any of our lives that is outside of his control, that nothing happens in your life that God didn't know about in eternity past and that God hasn't provided for, And to realize, as we see in this second short letter, that the Lord Jesus Christ is emphasizing his continuous presence in our life, even in the midst of that suffering and that adversity, gives us the strength to go on, to press on, and to push on to being a victorious Christian. We studied the word overcomer last time and saw that it derives from the noun nikao, N-I-K-A-O, which comes from the Greek noun nike, N-I-K-E, for the goddess of victory. And are we going to be nike believers or are we going to just be underachievers or perhaps even failures in the Christian life? And it's important to note that each of these short evaluation reports ends up with statements related to let those who have an ear hear. In other words, if you're really positive, then you'll pay attention. Those who aren't positive, just don't pay attention. And another statement related to the special privileges and rewards and positions that are going to be available to those believers who have rewardable divine good at the judgment seat of Christ and who have utilized this time on earth to be prepared for that future ruling and reigning responsibility in the millennial kingdom as priests and kings uh, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to this second letter, I just want to remind you that we have a similar structure in all of these uh, congregational evaluation reports. First of all, there is a commission, that, which is an address that opens each letter. There is an address to the angel of the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and lastly, Laodicea. There is a character reference to the Lord Jesus Christ which follows. And they're not just randomly chosen. In all but one of these short letters, the uh, character reference to the Lord Jesus Christ goes back to that image that John saw on the island of Patmos and or something that the Lord Jesus Christ said to him in that uh, vision. And furthermore, each of these attributes tie in and connect to what is being said in that epistle. Third section of each one of these is a commendation. Now, there are two that have no commendation because these churches are in operational carnality and they are divorced from the teaching of the Word and they have compromised with false doctrine, not too dissimilar from many churches today. But two churches, and one of them is the church that we're looking at this evening, and that's the church in Smyrna, have only commendations, no condemnation. They are churches that are fully squared away in terms of doctrine and are going through, in the case of the Smyrna church, going through an intense period of adversity that is designed to refine them in preparation for their future destiny as priests and kings for the Lord Jesus Christ. That fourth section that we I mentioned a minute ago in terms of uh, uh, condemnation is not mentioned in this particular evaluation. 
and uh, and there's two that don't have a condemnation. Philadelphia is the other one. But then there are two that have no commendation, but only condemnation. We'll see those as we go along. Then there's a correction. There's a warning, a prescription for recovery that is linked to the condemnation or in the sense of this passage, there is a, an exhortation or encouragement to the congregation to stand firm in the midst of adversity. Then there's a call to listen and apply. Let those who have an ear hear. And then there is a challenge, which is a personal promise of reward to the con- congregation. So this is the structure of each one of these short Congregational Evaluation Reports. Now let's look at the first verse. Revelation 2, verse 8. Revelation chapter 2, verse 8. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. So what we see here in this first verse is the commission, which is to the angel of the church in Smyrna. And the character reference, these things says the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Let's make a few observations on this particular verse. It's addressed to the angel, to the angelos, literally, which is a Greek word meaning messenger. Now, as we studied this in detail already, I'm just going to hit the high points for you. There are three different interpretations of this word. Uh, one is that angelos refers to a simple human messenger that as John was on the Isle of Patmos and he received the revelation, he was to make copies for each of the seven letters to the seven churches and he would have sent those full copies to each of these congregations. And so this is, in that view, is understood to be a reference to that messenger that was sent with the copy of the entire 22 chapters of Revelation to Ephesus, Myrna, uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, etc. The problem with that is that who are these messengers? How would you understand that? What would be the purpose of, of directing and or, or addressing each one of these evaluation reports to the simply the human messenger boy, the uh, sort of the... Uh, uh, Pony Express Rider, if they rode ponies, or Chariot Express Rider of the ancient world. Why address him, the Wells Fargo man? The second view is that the angel of the church then doesn't refer to simply that messenger, but the pastor, the pastor-teacher of each congregation. That's a view that's held by, by many people, and one that many of you heard and learned for many years. However, as I noted when we went through the study, the word angelos never has that connotation anywhere else in Scripture. So you have to stop and say, okay, if we're going to assign a totally new meaning to this word here, we have to have some kind of of, uh, evidence, some, some corroboration to support that. That's how you do exegesis. You don't just go into a text and say, well... Nothing else makes sense, so I have to, I, I'm, I'm going to come up with a new idea here. If you can, you work with the text as it stands. It's called, and we have, want to stick as close as possible to the principle of uh, literal, grammatical, exegetical interpretation. So we look at it, and we may not fully understand why this is addressed to an angel, But let's assume, for the sake of argument, that it is addressed to an angel. So as we got into this, I I posed the question, why would God, or the Lord Jesus Christ, post this information to an angel? And I took the time to go through each of these, and we noted that what these are are evaluation reports from the Lord Jesus Christ to these congregations with a particular warning. Now, why is he doing this? What, the, the thrust of each of these, and the, and the background thrust, is that each of these congregations stands as a witness in the angelic conflict. And so we backed up, and once you understand the angelic conflict, you realize that there is, in, in essence, as close as we can draw the analogy, 
a trial going on in the heavens where uh, Satan is pictured as the accuser of the brethren. And he is the one who is challenging the integrity of God. And so God is demonstrating his righteousness in history. And I think this is an important concept that we have to develop, especially as we get into some of the issues in this particular chapter, or in this particular letter, is the idea of the integrity of God, his righteousness. That's being challenged by Satan as well as God's ability to to truly rule and reign uh, in, the, in, in human history. And so in history, God is developing various legal witnesses. And this idea of legality, this idea of a courtroom setting for all of history is substantiated by, the, by a number of things in Scripture. You have a lot of legal terminology, terminology that comes right out of the courtroom in the ancient world that is used throughout the Scriptures to refer to uh, salvation, sanctification, uh, confession of sin is a legal term right out of a courtroom. Justification, imputation are all legal terms. Then you have terms such as covenant. You realize that throughout the Scripture from from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, God couches all of his dealings with man within the framework of these legal contracts. And within those legal contracts, he is demonstrating his faithfulness to his word. And that is a word that we used, a word that we use in English to describe that is integrity. And it is in those contracts, God lays out his standard, which is his, the righteousness of his character. He lays out what the consequences are for disobedience to that standard, and that's what we refer to as justice. And so we have these two ideas of righteousness and justice that permeate everything that is covered in the Scriptures. And that lies in the background. But those terms, righteousness and justice, are terms that once again come out of a, the background of a, of a courtroom setting. You, in the Psalms, you usually have the word truth that is also associated with the the, the righteousness and character of God. And then, especially in the Psalms, you see a fourth word that comes to play. Let me put this up on the overhead. We start off with the righteousness of God and His justice. The righteousness equals a standard. And the standard, of course, is His own character. And the justice relates to the application of that character. Then we bring in a third attribute of God, and that is veracity, absolute truth, which means that God cannot lie. He cannot distort the truth. What he says is true. And so we have this all connected. But there's a fourth word that comes along, and in the Hebrew, it looks something like this, C-H-E-S-E-D. And it is sometimes translated love, sometimes translated mercy, but it has the idea of loyal, faithful love. Or we may just want to reduce that to, in a sense, loyalty. Loyalty. Now, a lot of times, especially in our culture, when you want to say that love is loyalty, people go, well, wait a minute. Love has emotion to it, it has feeling with it, it has all of these other things. Well, that is usually described in the Hebrew by another word that looks like this. It's the word ahav. But that's not the word that we're focusing in on here. We're focusing in on this word chesed, which has to do with loyalty, and specifically it's loyalty to a covenant or a contract. And God is demonstrating His loyalty to us, and that is loyalty to His standard, which is expressed within the framework of those contracts. Uh, from, from the uh, creation contract in Genesis 1, 26 to 28, to the, its modification with Adam, a second modification comes along with Noah, then you have the Abrahamic, uh, the Jewish contracts or covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the 
land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and then the new covenant. And all of these interconnect and they express a standard of God and God is faithful. And we come along in the church age and our relation to all of this is spelled out within the framework of the blessing paragraph of the Abrahamic covenant on the one hand, which has its uh, modification and fullest expression in the new covenant. Now we'll get into all of this in detail as we go through, uh, go through Hebrews, but one of the things that has struck me more and more and more over the last uh, several years of my teaching ministry, coming out of the study that I did in the Gospel of John about six or seven years ago, and then First John, and then various studies I've been doing in the Old Testament, is that the barometer of love, the barometer of love is faithful obedience. The barometer of love is faithful obedience, loyalty. That's what's emphasized by Hesed, is God is always loyal to his word. He's always loyal to that contract or that covenant that he has made with man. And what God is doing in the life of believers in terms of sanctifying us, in terms of bringing us to maturity, is to teach us to be loyal to him. I mean, that just breaks it down to a very simple uh, understanding that we can all walk away with, is that God is teaching us to be loyal to him, and that's expressed how? In John, Jesus says again and again, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He doesn't say if you love me, you're going to spend 30 minutes singing uh, praises about how much you love me. One of the things you see in so many of these now, there's some, there's some modern music that's not bad, but so often what you see in a lot of the contemporary worship courses is the emphasis is on I, me, and mine. You look at those two hymns that we sang this evening and look at the tremendous doctrinal content that is there that uh, was at the foundation uh, and the framework of those writers' experience. They were mature believers who understood doctrine and had wrestled with issues in their spiritual life. The second uh, hymn that we, that we sang, which was um, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, just as a little side note, just so you sing these hymns with some level of appreciation and knowledge, this hymn was written by Robert Robertson, who lived in the 18th century, and it was a personal realization in the third stanza when he said, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. He knew that pressure from his own sin nature to lead him into rebellion against God. And indeed, after uh, several years up into his 30s when he was a growing, maturing believer, he then turned away from the Lord and went through uh, several years, a lengthy period of time where he was in rebellion against the Lord. And then he was riding in a coach one day, and a young woman got on the coach, And he introduced himself, and she recognized his name as the writer of that hymn. He had already written that hymn, and he understood the propensity of his own sin nature to wander from the Lord. And she told him, uh, she expressed her gratitude to him, not knowing anything about his current spiritual condition. She expressed her gratitude to him for that hymn and all that it meant to her and what a comfort the words were in her own spiritual life. And it caused him to just break down in tears in that coach because he had been wrestling in his own spiritual life with his need to uh, recover spiritually and get back with the Lord. And the Lord used his own writings to bring him up. That's sort of like people who repeat back to me things I teach when, when I'm going through adversity. You know, it's, it's never pleasant to have your own words uh, thrown back at you. So we see how God is working in our lives to produce maturity, and the idea is loyalty. He's teaching us to live a life according to the standard of His righteousness. And that's not easy because we're all fallen creatures, and we have a sin nature. But that's the standard. So the issue is, as Jesus said several times in in the Gospel of John, and the ideas are repeated again in 1 John, if you love me... You will keep my commandments. 
Love is measured by obedience to his word. So if we're going to keep his commandments, what do we have to know? We have to know what they are. We have to understand what the imperatives of the New Testament are and how they relate to one another. One of the things that struck me this last week as I was reading through Deuteronomy in preparation for things that are going on in in, uh, Hebrews, things that are going on in... uh, and with the prophecy conference coming up, I sat down this last week and I'm reading through certain sections of the Old Testament, trying to work, re, just read through 35, 40 chapters every morning. So that keeps me, keeps me busy. But when you do stuff like that, you start to notice things. And what I noticed in the book of Deuteronomy was that again and again and again, chapter after chapter after chapter, the Lord says, that you, the command is to love the Lord your God and walk in His ways, observing all that I command you. If that is said one time, that is said 50 times in the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, I was thinking about it. I said, you know, most people get it wrong. I think the book of Deuteronomy is all about how to love the Lord your God. Period. It's a book on all about loving God and how you do that. But you see, the modern mindset is that loving God has something to do with sentiment or emotion or how we feel. And most of the time, especially if you're in carnality, you don't feel like walking in God's ways. You don't feel like applying doctrine to the situation. When you get out of fellowship, you want to uh, wallow around in that carnality, a lot like the prodigal son wallowed around in the pigsty for a while. At first, it sort of feels good. You can wallow around in in self-pity or... You can wallow around in anxiety or in bitterness or in anger, resentment, all kinds of mental attitude sins. And and we can uh, convince ourselves that we take comfort by enjoying some of these things. And and yet the Scripture says that that's, that's not loving God. We need to learn to live mentally and overtly in line with His standard. So God is working in each of our lives to teach us how to do that. And the remarkable thing about God is that he has these attributes that come into play. And we often talk about them, and we break them down usually into ten attributes uh, in the essence box. But what I'm going to do tonight is introduce one category that we usually don't use, and that is the idea that God is infinite. And usually we break infinite down into two or three different areas in the essence box. We talk about God as infinite in time, and this is a term that relates to his eternality. God is infinite with respect to time. He has no beginning. He has no end. We also talk about God's infinity in relationship to knowledge. And this we call his omniscience, that in his omniscience he knows everything there is to know about what's going to happen in human history. He knows everything there is to know about your soul. He knows you intimately. And this is brought out in this text in uh, Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, when the Lord Jesus Christ says, I know your works, and he uses the perfect tense of the verb oida. And oida, O-I-D-A, emphasizes intuitive knowledge as opposed to gnosko, which is usually learned or acquired knowledge. And this emphasizes the fact that as the Lord Jesus Christ is talking to this congregation that is going to go through some tremendous Uh, adversity and suffering and persecution. He is talking about how intimately he knows each and every one of them and what they're going through. They're not just left alone. You're not just wandering around in this hostile cosmic system to have to deal with the struggles and the heartaches and the problems and the assaults and adversities all by yourself. There is an intimate knowledge based on the infinity are the, the infinite knowledge of God. A third aspect of his infinity is 
related to God in terms of space. We had time over here with his eternality, and with regard to space, we call this God's omnipresence. God's omnipresence. And that doesn't simply mean that God is everywhere. What that means is God is fully and totally present to every aspect of his creation at every nanosecond of time. Now think about that. God is fully, totally present to each and every molecule of his creation at every nanosecond of time. Whether you're in Texas or Connecticut or Washington State or if you're over in Ukraine or if you're down in Indonesia or in Japan, wherever you may be, God is just as fully present to you as he is to somebody on the other side of the, of the globe. And that's his omnipresence. Now, when we think about that in terms of going through adversity, once again, we recognize that not only does God know us fully, and he's fully aware of every aspect, every dimension of our own soul, and whatever it is that we're going through, our own strengths, our own weaknesses, the propensities of our own sin nature. Not only is he fully, fully knowledgeable of every, everything that we're going through, but he is also fully present in the midst of that testing. We can't get away from him, the psalmist says in Psalm 139, whether I ascend to heaven or go down to the grave to Sheol, God, thou art with me. We can't escape him. We can't run away from him in our carnality. God is continuously present, present with us. And then the fourth attribute of, of God that flows out of his infinity is his omnipotence. That God is able, often you get into those silly little traps. Well, if God is, a, if God is omnipotent, can he make a square a circle? God can do anything. Well, that's not what omnipotence means. What omnipotence means is God is able to do anything that he wants to do. God, don't get caught in these logical traps that some silly person comes up with. God is fully able to accomplish his will. He can do whatever it takes to accomplish his will. He can do whatever it takes in your life and my life to accomplish his will. He is fully able to do that. So when you combine this power of God with his knowledge and with his presence, then that gives us a a foundation on which to build the entire doctrine that the Scripture calls the, the comfort of God, the comfort of the Holy Spirit, encouragement. There's two or three different English words that we use to express that, indicating that God fully supplies everything that we need in order to handle any circumstance in life. He's never taken by surprise. He knew about whatever it is that we're going through billions and billions of years ago, and he made a plan that was so detailed and so comprehensive and so sufficient that it supplies anything and everything that we need And there's no cause for us to just throw up our hands in discouragement. Just because we don't know all that is involved doesn't mean that he doesn't know. Faith in God in the midst of adversity isn't irrationality. Irrationality just throws all intellection to the wind. In trusting God, we may not know everything, but we know that in his omniscience, he does know everything, and that there is a full, rational explanation for everything. We're not living in an irrational world, even though there are times when it may appear that way. Now, this is just sort of a framework for helping us understand uh, the background or uh, the framework for this particular letter of evaluation. When, the, when this letter is given, it's to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, I gave you two views already, and we ran down some rabbit trails. We'll get back to it. The third view on the angel is that this is a literal angel. This is like the angel served as officers of the court, and they were observers. They are observers of human history to be witnesses within this trial 
of the angelic conflict. And that makes sense because these aren't epistles like you have in the Pauline epistles or the Petrine epistles or the Johannine epistles. These aren't written to explain doctrine and then to give application. There is doctrine here, but these are written to challenge these believers to walk to the degree that they become victorious in their Christian life. So this is to be posted to the angel assigned to this congregation, that that angel functioning as a court officer in the heavenly court will be a witness to how this congregation serves as a testimony in the angelic conflict. And if they are successful, then that will be posted. If they are not successful, then that will also be posted. So it, the address is to the, this angel who gets a, gets a copy of this note. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the speaker here, says, These things, says he who has the sharp, or excuse me, I jumped ahead. These things, says the first and the last, who was dead and came to life. Now, as I've gone through these attributes of God, I wanted to do that ahead of time because that shapes, that's the background for understanding these titles assigned to the Lord Jesus Christ. These titles don't just come out of thin air. The interpretation of these titles is not uh, derived by simply contemplating the terms and trying to decide what they might infer. We must always interpret within the framework of context. Always interpret within the framework of context. It's like the other morning I was sitting at breakfast with someone who had just purchased a Ryrie study Bible and wanted me to inscribe something at the opening of the Ryrie Study Bible. And as I looked at it, I noticed it was a New King James Version, and it was a red-letter version. And I said, I said, boy, you've got a red-letter Bible. That outlines. But, it, but I said, you know, the problem is it doesn't outline all the words of Jesus, just those spoken in his humanity during the Incarnation. I said, you know who I learned that from? I held up the Bible. I said, you know who I learned that from? Think in context. That was one of Ryrie's major points. He hated red-letter Bibles. It's, you know, those are publishers that impose that on writers. It's, it's, it's a wicked thing out there in the Christian publishing industry. In fact, I use, uh, I use a, uh, the Tim LaHaye Prophecy Study Bible, and there's an article in Genesis chapter 6 on dispensations, which I wrote. And in there, I clearly define salvation as faith alone in Christ alone. But because of the debate over lordship salvation and somewhere in the bowels of the editorial process, one of those alones got removed. And I had no recourse. See, this is what happens in the publishing industry, which is why it's nice to be able to uh, do your own publishing. Make sure you oversee things like that and don't, don't have something end up on the uh, editorial f- floor. So the church at Smyrna... These things says the first and the last. Well, where do we get that terminology? Flip over a couple of pages to Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. Revelation 1, verse 16. I want you to notice the context. Jesus, in all of his glory, has now appeared to John. He's got uh, white hair and God, it is a, he speaks with a loud voice as of a trumpet, his head and his hair are white uh, like wool, his eyes are like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, and his voice like the sound of many waters. If you've ever stood by uh, Niagara Falls, that would give you some idea of the volume of his voice. It's enough to just, just knock John down. But when Jesus speaks, the first thing he utters is a command, don't be Afraid. What is the orientation of the human heart towards God in a fallen condition? It's fear. First thing that happened when God came and supreme incarnate Lord Jesus Christ came to uh, speak to Adam after the fall, they were afraid and hid. So the first thing the Lord says is, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, what does that mean, I am the first 
And the last, well, we can't just, once again, just kind of generate our interpretation from contemplating our navel from these two passages. We have to look at the fact that there's an overall, there's an overall uh, framework to understand this. I am the first and the last, and so we have to turn to a couple of Old Testament passages. So we'll uh, turn in your Bibles to Isaiah. We're going to string through a couple of Isaiah passages. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Isaiah 41, verse 4. Isaiah 41, verse 4. We discover that the speaker is God. Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am the I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. So here is the Lord utilizing this terminology in the Old Testament, and it's in a context that is emphasizing His eternality. This same phrase is used in Isaiah 44, verse 6. So turn over just a couple of pages. You ought to kind of, uh, if you're taking notes, it's always helpful to underline some of these things and then put the next reference next to it so later on you can find your, your daisy chain again and go back through these references in order. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Again, it is the Lord addressing Israel. If you look at the first verse, yet hear me now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. So the speaker here is the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 6, he identifies himself. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord, the King of Israel, is God the Father, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, that is, the second person of the Trinity. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no other God. Notice it's clear that there are two personalities there, sort of an indication of the Trinity even in the Old Testament. But I want you to note that both, and this is important for Revelation, both Father and Son are called the first and the last. So it's not a title that's unique to one person in the Trinity. And it emphasizes the, again, if you look at the context, it indicates the beginning or it indicates the eternality of the Lord. The way you get that is this is what's called a merism. A merism is a figure of speech that uses two extremes, so for like night and day, I meditate on the Lord day and night. Well, you take two extremes, day and night, and when you put them together like that, you're indicating the totality of something. And you look at the uh, creation of the heavens and the earth. That's another merism. You have two different opposites put together, and it indicates the totality of the universe. So when uh, the Lord says he's the first and the last. He is the, he's the beginning and the end. He is everything. So it's, a, it's related to his infinity and his uh, eternality. Again, the Lord refers to himself the same way in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. In context, context, there's an emphasis on his omnipotence and his being the creator. So again, the idea of his being the first and the last takes on the totality of who he is, and he is everything and he is, it relates to his infinity. So infinity relates to his, the doctrine of his sufficiency, because, of course, if he is the first and the last, he is sufficient for everything. Now let's go back to our passage in Revelation chapter 2. 2 eight. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, uh, 
These things, says the first and the last. And that's not all he says. He then says, who was dead and came to life. Now, in order to be dead, what do you have to be first? You have to be alive. So, it's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. He begins by using a title that relates to the eternality of God, is applied to God the Father, as we saw, as well as to the, the Redeemer of Israel in the Old Testament. It's a term that emphasizes his eternality. And so we see a clear statement in Scripture that Jesus is identi- here, he's identifying himself with God the Father. He's emphasizing his eternality and his deity. This isn't the idea of the Jesus Christ being divine is not something that just snuck into uh, Christianity some two or three hundred years after the New Testament was written. It's embedded in both Old and New Testament. For example, in Isaiah 9:6, talks about the. It's really a poor translation. Uh, I'll look at it uh, briefly. Isaiah 9:6 is talking about the coming Messiah. And it's a passage that emphasizes the fact that he is going to be fully God and eternal. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Child is born emphasizes his humanity. A child will be born. He's entering into history. But he's more than simply a child. He's a son. And that term son had messianic implications. It had implications related to the Davidic covenant, a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, comma, Counselor. It's not Wonderful Counselor. He's not the psychotherapist in the heavens. He is Wonderful, comma, Counselor, indicating he is the one who encourages and strengthens us, Mighty God, and then unfortunately the King James translated it, and many other translations follow it, as Everlasting Father. How can the child be the father? We have a Trinitarian problem here. And if you look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew uses a genitive construct, and it should be translated father of eternity. Father of eternity. And that is simply a a descriptive way of talking about his eternality. If he is the father of eternity, he is eternal. So it is not saying that the son is eternal the everlasting Father, but the Son is the Father of eternity. He's the Prince of Peace, and then it goes on to talk about other aspects. But here we see that, that both elements related to the Messiah, that he's a human and that he is eternal, and eternality is an attribute of deity. Another passage in the Old Testament that emphasizes the deity of Christ is found in uh, one of the minor prophets, they're called minor prophets not because they're less significant, but they're called minor prophets because they're not as long or as lengthy or as have as many chapters as the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we have one of the most significant prophecies of the Old Testament in detail. But, stating, but you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, if his goings forth are from everlasting, and he's going to be, and the implication here is going to be born in Bethlehem, again you have this same uh, idea that's presented in Isaiah 9:6, and that is there's a birth of someone that's eternal. He's going to be born in Bethlehem, but he's also eternal. His goings forth are from everlasting. And then, of course, one of the strongest passages in all of Scripture related to the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ is found in the first chapter of the Gospel of John, a verse that should be familiar to many of you. verse that reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God, one of the strongest statements of the deity of Christ. And uh, you lose it somewhat in the English because we don't understand the significance of, uh, of the Greek tense used for the verb in this passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was there. 
is in the Hebrew, I mean in the Greek, an imperfect tense. In Greek, in, in English, when we talk about tense, we talk about primarily one thing, and that is the time of the action. Did it happen yesterday? Then it's past time. Is it happening now? It's present time. If it's happening tomorrow or next year, it's future time. But in Greek, you have another element. You have kind of action, which the grammarians call aspect. So you have time of action and kind of action. And the time of action may be past or present or future, but kind of action is either going to be a summary action, which is like the aorist tense, it just summarizes it, it's like taking a snapshot of the action, or it can be continuous action. For example, present tense is continuous action in present time. Uh, aorist tense is just summarizes past action. Or it can be uh, perfective action, which is completed action. Now that usually takes up a whole hour to explain that in a Greek class. What we have here with the word was is the imperfect of the Greek word eimi, E-I-M-I. And the imperfect tense in the Greek is continuous action in past time. The aorist tense was summary. But when, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John said that in the beginning was the Word, he is saying at the time of the beginning of all things, the Word was, con- was already continuously existing. That's the implication of the imperfect tense. At that point that space and time began, when, when it moved from a timeless eternity to a space-time bound creation, the Word, the Logos, already was continuously existing. So it emphasizes the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ, who as the Logos was the one who became flesh and dwelt among us. Down in verse 14. Well, let's go back to our passage in Revelation chapter 2, now that we've sort of walked around the Old Testament and New Testament a little bit. Get back to our passage. These things says he who has, or excuse me, these things says the first and the last emphasizes his infinity and his, the fact that he is the beginning and end of all things, who was dead and came to life. This is one who was born in time, and at the end of his life he suffered an unjust martyrdom, we might say. He was unjustly put to death. The trial that both the Roman trials and the Jewish trials, there were six trials before Jesus Christ was sent to die on the cross at Golgotha. Those six trials were all illegal. Here was a man who had committed no crime. There was no fault found in him. He was blameless, blameless before the law. And in one of the most egregious acts of, in all of history, this man who was perfectly right in all that he did was condemned as a criminal and put on the cross. And let me suggest that there's no injustice in life that you or I can ever face that even comes close to the injustice that he experienced and the maltreatment he experienced, that that he came into his own, the Scripture says in John 1, but his own did not receive him. Those to whom he had promised his coming for generations rejected him, the ultimate of all rejection. And so when we read that he is the one who was alive, was, was, uh, that he was the one who was dead and came to life, it's a reminder of the fact that he was one who had experienced uh, some of the most incredible opposition and persecution to the point of death of any human being in all time, and he conquered death through the resurrection. And if he conquered sin on the cross and he conquered death, the most extreme consequence of sin through the resurrection, then how much can he do for you and I when we go through various trials and traumas and conflicts in our own Christian life? 
That's the backdrop, because what we're going to see here in the church at Smyrna is they are going to go through some incredible persecution. So let's take a minute to think about the, this uh, church in Smyrna. Here is a picture of modern Izmir. Modern Izmir is uh, ancient Smyrna. It is still a thriving metropolis of uh, several hundred thousand today. And it has had a history that extends back to approximately 2000 BC. In 1000 BC, or about 1100 BC in the 10th century, there was an influx of Greeks known as Aeolians who came in and on the north side of this uh, uh, harbor area of this Gulf of Smyrna, they established the first colony. Now, Smyrna is located 35 miles north of Ephesus. I didn't put the Ephesus map in here, but I'll have it up next time. It's located 35 miles north of Ephesus at the sort of the southwestern end of a harbor of a gulf that extends from the northeast to the southwest. And it is a protected harbor. It's a large harbor. It's extremely deep. There's no silting there as there was at Ephesus. So you can see that as time developed, especially in the first century, a lot of competition had developed between the Smyrnians and the Ephesians in terms of who was going to have the best, the best port and get most of the, most of the commerce. The name for the city Smyrna is etymologically related to the word for myrrh, Smyrna and myrrh. And myrrh referred to a, uh, a bitter herb. That was basic, the basic meaning of myrrh was bitter, and it was used as a, um, uh, an embalming dead body. So immediately, even in the name, we, we, we sent something of the death that hangs over the believers in the uh, city of Smyrna. As I said earlier, it was originally colonized by the Aeolian Greeks about 1100 B.C., and there was a large Greek population there until it was wiped out by the Turkish government in 1923. The original Smyrna... Uh, Smyrnians, the Aeolians, uh, established the, their colony on the north side of the Gulf, but it wasn't uh, long, about 200 years before Ionian Greeks moved into the area and established a colony on the south side, and then while all the Aeolians were out uh, worshiping the, um, uh, their, at, at a festival of Dionysius, that the Ionians snuck in. Typical Greeks, it sort of smacks of, uh, of, the, of the Trojan, the whole Trojan War uh, episode with the Trojan horse. And while the Aeolians were out at having their drunken orgies with Dionysius, the Ionians moved in and destroyed their, the city and destroyed the colony. So that the city now moved to the southern coast of the, of the harbor. In the 6th century B.C., Smyrna was threatened by the expanding uh, Lydian kingdom, and the Lydians defeated them in battle and destroyed the city, scattered the people. But the Smyrnians held on to their identity, and some 200, 300 years later, when Alexander the Great came through the area, they uh, lobbied to have their city reestablished by Alexander. Alexander not, never got around to it, but after he died, one of his generals took control of that part of of Greece and, and Turkey, uh, and took control and established the, reestablished the city of Smyrna. Strabo, who was a geographer of the ancient world and traveler, uh, described Smyrna as the most beautiful city in the ancient world. And as you may be able to tell from these, from these pictures, it's surrounded by this uh, ridge line that you see going up on this upper right hand side of this this picture, and the the gulf is uh, and the harbor is down to the left from where this picture is being taken and this ridge line basically encircled the south uh, eastern edge of the city, and all of the major public buildings and temples were erected on that ridge line so that it was called the crown of Ionia. Notice in the text, 
these believers are going to be promised the crown of life. See, it's wonderful to see all these little connections in the Word. Uh, by the first century, uh, the city was, was, uh, uh, had a large Jewish population. So not only did you have the, the pagan Greek festivals there, and at one end of the, of the crown of, of, uh, of Ionia, they had a temple to Zeus, and at the other end there was a temple to Sibylle, who was the, uh, sort of the protectoress of the, of the city. Not only did you have those temples, you also had temples to Apollo and Asclepius and a number of other uh, Greek deities. So it was a very strong pagan worship. But one of the most important things that happened was in 195 uh, B.C., in order to gain the, the uh, favor of Rome, the Smyrnians built a temple to Rome. And this caused them to go into an alliance with the Romans and really established Rome in that area of Turkey and led to the tremendous victories that Rome had over the Greeks in Asia Minor. As a reward for that, they were a free city, which meant they didn't have to pay taxes for a number of years. Eventually, they lost that status under the uh, empire when it moved from being a republic to an empire. And then... Uh, then in, in 25 uh, A.D., they established a, another temple there to, the, to Caesar. And during the first century, during the time of Christ and subsequently in the New Testament era, it became a, a major seat of emperor worship. And during the reign of, of Domitian, which reign, and he was the uh, emperor from about 81 to... Uh, 96, from AD 81 to 96, Domitian mandated emperor worship so that if you were a citizen, you had to, once a year, go into the temple, you had to burn incense on the altar to Caesar, and then you were given a certificate that you were a good, good Roman, and you were fine. And if you were ever challenged, you had to produce this certificate, and if you didn't, then, you, then it was a death penalty. So they took this uh, very seriously. And, of course, there were some Christians who thought, well, this really has no meaning, so I'm just going to uh, go ahead and go through the motions, and after all, what does it matter? But it mattered a tremendous amount, and that's the background for this little uh, letter to the Smyrnians. They are going to be persecuted, and there were a number of persecutions that occurred during this time, and we don't know which one this was, but they're being warned that there's going to be a, a tremendous uh, persecution. A number of you are going to be thrown into jail, and some are going to lose their life because they're going to take a stand for the truth, and they're not going to view this as some little superficial act, but they're going to recognize that it's important as a believer that you have to take your stand for the truth. And sometimes that costs you your job. Sometimes that costs you friends. Sometimes that costs you uh, relations with family members. And sometimes that costs you your health. And it may even cost you your life. And that's what was happening uh, in the uh, latter part of the first century and on into the second century. One of the most well-known figures in the early part of the second century was Polycarp. Polycarp had been a student of the Apostle John in the church at Ephesus at the time that uh, Revelation was being written. And Polycarp, when he was an old man in 155, was uh, arrested and he was uh, burned uh, at the stake because of his faith in Christ. And he was one of just a vast number of believers in, uh, in Smyrna who lost their life and under persecution from the Roman Empire. But it didn't just come from the Romans. It also came from the Jews. And we'll look at that next time as we go through uh, chapter, uh, verse 9 and continue our understanding of how the Lord Jesus Christ uh, comforts us and strengthens us in the midst of the most extreme adversity, all with a view towards producing in us the character of Jesus Christ so that we can grow to spiritual maturity and rule and reign with him in the millennial kingdom. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
And Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study these things in your word, to be challenged by them, to be encouraged by the fact that you are involved in our lives and down to the most minute detail, and that you are the one who strengthens us in the midst of testing, in the midst of adversity, and that there is no difficulty, no adversity, no no amount of persecution in this life that you cannot uh, provide comfort and strength in. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross, and he paid the penalty for your sins. All you need to do to have eternal salvation is to believe that Jesus died for you, that your sins are paid for, that he did everything necessary, and that there is nothing you can do to add to or to uh, make that salvation uh, or make yourself more savable. All you need to do is simply believe that Jesus died on the cross for you. At that instant, God and his omniscience know that you, knows that you are trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And at that instant, you are regenerate. The perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to you, and you are declared just, and you have eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things we studied this evening, and that we might be encouraged in the midst of the trials and the testing that we face, knowing that your promises, your principles, that you have provided for us are always sufficient for anything we face in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.